0: Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for Jesus, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. We thank you that we can have a seminar inquiring of our Lord Jesus. What would he have us to do with regard to our media use? Please bring us enlightenment and understanding. Please bring us discernment and and courage as well to make decisions for our lives. Help us to be inspired to share these things with others as we think about those who are trapped in this this prison of, of digital addiction. And so we just pray for your Holy Spirit to be present with us and give us hope, give us promise, give us understanding. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a Facebook executive, former Facebook executive that I quoted yesterday. Do you remember what he said yesterday before I continue with what he said there? Yes, he said, we are ripping apart the social fabric of, this, of how society works. He says, we're destroying how society works by everything going digital in terms of our social relationships. And now, I quote him saying this in the same interview he did. Former Facebook executive says, you don't realize it, but you are being programmed. We're going to see in this session how big tech is on a absolute rampage with programming this generation and before I even say that, I want to tell you that you can hear him say these things instead of just reading it on a screen by looking at our, our media mind trailer that we just released. Last week we did, we, we put together a preview of the media mind. Oh, and that reminds me also, the, the ABC with their table there tomorrow, they said, let's, let's have the people be able to place the pre-orders for the media mind through the ABC right there at the table. Then it's not me telling you go to the website and do that and, and you're not on your smartphones while you're listening to a message, right? Because you're engaged. You're here. You're fully present. So anyway, this series that we're going through is, is a portions of the full media mind series that's going to be released in September and you'll be able to order that at the table tomorrow. So be sure to be here tomorrow for our final media mind session. Now, did I say final session or final media mind session? final media mind session, because Friday we're going to do some of the throwback material, the classic media on the brain information. And if you haven't heard that in a while, maybe I've been to your church, or you were here seven years ago when we did that uh, live at the camp meeting, come anyway, because it's great review. And then you can internalize it, and you can share those things with others. But um, we are indeed being programmed, so hear him say that on on the trailer. that you could probably find it on YouTube. I don't, I don't know exactly how to find it. Just email me. That's the only way I'll know how to give it to you. I don't know if you can search it on YouTube yet, but the Media Mind trailer number one and the Media Mind trailer number two will have this fellow and Sean Parker, the founding president of Facebook, when he came out and he's like, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. And he says, we were deliberately exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology when we created these platforms. Those are amazing statements from these people who were at the very founding, the very origins of these platforms and these social media tools. Now, some of the other guys that were involved with the building of these technologies is the fellow who invented the Facebook like button. Where you get the like and you get the hit of dopamine and you feel good. Somebody's approved of me. Somebody likes what I said or what I did or my photo. Every other um, social media uh, platform followed with the like button because it became this cycle where people crave likes. By the way, yesterday when we looked at anti-social media, people who crave likes are also especially psychologically and emotionally harmed by Facebook and, and social media use, as opposed to people who have a little less you know, desire. I need the likes to affirm who I am and all of that. But the guy who invented the like button, he himself came out in an interview and said, I regret having invented that. It's messing with people. And he said he he himself has zero social media apps on his phone. He doesn't abstain completely, everybody's going to find their own balance in this. For some people it's totally get off of it because it's messing with you. For other people you can have it on your phone and it really doesn't interrupt your day and disrupt your relationship. For him, he said no way this stuff gets in the way of what I'm trying to do in the present moment in the physical space in which I inhabit, so I'm only going to use social media on the computer at home, not on my phone everywhere I go. This is the man who invented a certain function on your smartphone. You've probably noticed it. It's called pull to refresh, where you pull the screen down, and then it goes waiting, waiting, thinking, thinking, and then ding, 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 and you get all these lit up items with these blue dots or whatever it is next to it. And he was asked in an interview. Is this kind of like a slot machine? Because we've heard a lot of talk from these tech engineers about how they're manipulating people's psychology and dopamine system and reward circuitry. Is this like the casinos we're doing with the gambling with a slot machine? Pull down. Wait, 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 wait. Circular motion. He's like, yeah, that's pretty much what it was. And he also pointed out that with data speeds today, that function is totally irrelevant. It's not needed anymore because you can have automatic refreshing happening so quickly. But that would defeat the purpose of the pull-down wait moment. And you got the reward, and you get more and more addicted to these devices and to these phones. By the way, there's a difference between this type of addiction and that type of addiction. With that place called the casino, you actually have to get in your car, think it through, schedule it out. I'm actually going to go there. You're doing the drive of shame. I'm actually going to do this. And then you're going to waste the money there. And you know, where people wonder where I am. <laughs> it's a lot harder to get addicted to that than something that's with you all the time, isn't it? They call it variable rewards. Variable rewards as opposed to consistent rewards. This would be intermittent. You don't know whether you're gonna get the reward or not. It's variable, it vary, it's a variation on, I'm gonna pull, oh, I didn't get anything that time. And a few minutes later, pull, oh, I got one there. And, and so what, what happens in the brain is there is a 400% increase in dopamine, when it's a variable war- reward, you don't know if you're going to win it or not. Then, if you, it's an expected automatic reward that you get accustomed to doing, a drastically higher amplification of the dopamine reward circuitry, almost as much as cocaine. By the way, 400 percent increase is just about the same level as cocaine is doing in the brain. They call it also the magic of maybe. They say that the people, the manipulators who are using these mechanisms to try to captivate people and get them addicted, they use it. They use to. Ter- words like magic. It's pretty interesting because I thought of these tech executives kind of as like the wizards of, of modern digital pharmacia, if you will, the magic of maybe. Sometimes you get one, sometimes you don't. It's that powerful. Remember Sean Parker, founding president, the first president of Facebook, he said in an, in an interview... Our goal here was to give them a little dopamine hit every once in a while when they're on the social media sites to keep them contributing more content. Because they don't want you on there for five minutes and then off. Well, Their whole business model is getting as much of your time on there, contributing as much in material and data as possible. And he came out and said, the inventors, creators of, of these social media sites, it's me, it's Mark Zuckerberg, it's Kevin Sistram on Instagram, it's all of these people understood this consciously, and we did it anyway. This is his way of doing an apology to her, as I said yesterday. We did this consciously, and we were deliberately exploiting vulnerabilities in human psychology. What were we thinking? And God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains, as he said. He just admitted that they were studying and deliberately and consciously how to handicap our ability to self-regulate and make our own choices. The whole idea is to capture people's choices before they ever get a chance to think it through. He goes on and says, this is the guy who created the pull-down to refresh. He says, I have two kids now, and I regret every minute that I'm not paying attention to them because my smartphone has sucked me in. He has blocked certain websites, turned off push notifications, restricted his use of the Telegram app to message only with his wife and two close friends, and tried to wean himself off Twitter. He says, I still waste time on it. So there's the verdict from some of these people. But if you, if you go through the, a little bit of the history of these p- platforms and sites, even places like YouTube, do you remember at YouTube, when you, now, when you used to go on YouTube years ago, you would have to click the video to get it started playing, right? And now you're getting things that automatically play where you just finished a video and then all of a sudden you see it. Okay, wait for the next one. And now the next video you're probably going to like based upon the psychological profile and the algorithm we have built of your preferences. And all of a sudden you're watching the next video and you didn't even plan on doing that, right? And I was doing this very slide at a church in San Jose earlier this spring. And at the DVD table after sundown, a lady came up to me. She's like, this is San Jose, right? This is Silicon Valley. She comes up, she's like, I work for Google, Google who owns YouTube, and she's like, yeah. She's all in hushed tones, like the smartphones are listening to us and stuff. It's just, anyway, she works with this, and she goes, I have to tell you something, 70% of YouTube views now are off of autoplay, which is where it chooses your next video, and you're just like captive to this thing. 70%, the majority of views of YouTube videos now are because of this function that is sucking us in, to use the phrase of the fellow who preceded this, Then you get next Netflix doing the same thing. You finish the episode, it leaves you with a cliffhanger, and you don't have to wait till next week now. I mean, there used to be a little bit of a governor on our binge watching of television. Now it just auto plays the next. You remember the kids in the video on Sunday that I showed to you? And one of them was like, I watched 20 hours of a television series in one weekend or something like that. And you're like, oh, man. This is a major problem. It captures us and sucks us right in. Facebook autoplay, same thing when you're on the page. The video just starts and it captures our attention. Doesn't the Bible say, don't be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy? We want to have the fruit of the spirit, which is self-control. So we are in the driver's seat as subservient to God, our master, when we are online, when we are on these sites. So we have to be aware of the techniques being used. This one is called the infinite scroll. Do you remember when you used to get to the bottom of a web page and you felt like you were done? Do you know what I'm talking about? Now there's no bottom. You just keep Scrolling, Pinterest invented it, and then everybody else followed. And it just keeps us going and going and going and going and going and going and going. going Because we don't want to psychologically, we don't want to stop something. God created our minds to finish the task, complete the job. Well, there is no completing point. I've been on there for 45 minutes, and I keep on scrolling. Psychologists call it a state of insufficiency. It's like you know you put the food on the plate, and if you left some of it, you're like, I'm I'm in a state of insufficiency. I gotta finish that off. Same thing with the scrolling. So when we get online, here's a little thought, a tip, something to be cognizant and consciously aware of. Go on with a purpose. I'm going on to do X, Y, and Z. And then when you're done with that, get off, right? Because then we, well, otherwise we get sucked right in and where our time is being wasted away. This is the guy that invented a smartphone game called Flappy Bird. I'd never heard of Flappy Bird, but I read about this in a book that I'll tell you about in just a second. Now, this guy had a, such an addictive game. People got so addicted to this thing that he was making $50,000 a day. But he was looking at the data coming in on how much time How much human time was being wasted on playing this silly game? And you pick your game. It could be Farmville from years ago or whatever it is today. Is Farmville still around? I don't know. Not really. Is it? So (laughs) Pick your video game. Every one of them is a waste of time. And um, so he goes, I feel horrible about what I've done. I'm wasting millions of hours of time. He pulled the video game from the app store eliminated He took people's alcohol away, took their drug away. You realize how much money he just gave up? He walked away with his integrity. Somebody else made a ripoff game and walked away with the money. But praise God for some of these people who are waking up to the the system of, of thought control that they are Perpetuating. This is Snapchat, the biggest social media thing for young people today. And when I heard this phrase for the first time, I was like, I know what that is on a marketing level. It's called the Snap Streak. And you have a a, how many days in a row you have chatted with certain people in your social media circle. And so you have to get on there and say something to them each day or you break your snap streak. What does that sound like? Anybody a former sports fan around here? I used to be a big sports fanatic. What does snap streak sound like? Like a win streak, right? I'm gonna lose. I got 85 people here, or 14 people here, or however many people I gotta be having my snap streak with. We've been going for almost a thousand days. We care about it. We are such besties. So then we're on there that much longer just to keep our snap streak up. And then the New York Times pointed out a study of more than 400 8th and 11th graders, and they found that many teenage texters had a lot in common with compulsive gamblers, including losing sleep because of texting, problems cutting back on texting, and lying to cover up the amount of time they spent texting. Now, this book got my attention. It's called Hooked, How to Build habit-forming products. So this is a blueprint of how to do what these big tech companies have done. And I'm like, hmm, what are they saying they will do? So let me see, let me see if I can read some uh, from the other side here, what's going on. And what they point out in this is something wonderful on a spiritual level. They're just applying it to a, frankly, nefarious purpose. But what they pointed out is that half of our daily thoughts and actions are unconscious thoughts and actions. They're things we do out of habit. It's in the basal ganglia of the brain. And now why do I say that that's a wonderful thing on a spiritual level? Do you not want to have habits of thought and action that are pleasing to God? I want to do this. This is what it says in Desire of Ages. This is what I would like to have in my life, and I know you would too. Christ will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, We shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Did you catch that? It's impulse to do right. Because of the habitual patterns in the basal ganglia and the whole neural network of our brain, we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that's a verse that I've been saying uh, hundreds and hundreds of times to doing the media on the brain seminars, and it's still as relevant as ever in this content. What is the verse? Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, these industries of thought captivation, they are seeking to conform the minds of the masses. And we'll touch on that more on Friday with some of that media on the brain material. But God doesn't want us to be conformed. He wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we can have minds that are habitually in thought patterns of holiness, righteousness, and good. That gets me excited about these aspects of the brain. God created them for his glory. Satan just co-opts them so that when we get a smartphone, you know, a decade ago, and you you pick up your... Hey, like, this is cool. This is a neat device. It's useful. I will use it. I use one. They're not all, you know, of of the devil, but they can become a problem because fast forward to our present decade, and instead of us saying, cool, I'm going to use my smartphone, it's like the other way around. It's like we're getting used. We're getting owned by this system kind of a funny cartoon with the smartphone holding the man instead of the man smart holding the smartphone, but it's as if it uses me. Does God have the answer to this? He always does. Let us be in this mindset that Jesus was in, that he, being in the very nature God, did not consider Position with God, something to be clung on to, but made himself of no reputation and took on the very nature of a servant and made in human likeness, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And that downward humbling experience that he did to say, I will not ascend above the others like Lucifer said he will do. I, 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 I. I will come down. And he invites us into that same experience of the mind of setting aside our pleasures and preferences and what we want and being willing to surrender and sacrifice And then all of a sudden, this experience starts to come in where he blends his thoughts with our thoughts and he blends his minds with our minds to the point where we are now carrying out our own impulses when we are doing his will. Never let that go because that's not just like a pipe dream. That's not just something, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could do that? That will be the experience of God's people in the last days. By God's grace and power to will and act according to His good purpose in our lives. Here's another guy from the tech industry who is the inventor, James Williams is his name, inventor of one of the most important advertising systems in the history of the Internet. And one day at work for Google, he was taking a look at some big glowing screens and multicolored displays with charts and data on it about how much people were clicking on the ads and so on. And he looked at that, and he had a pang of, man, we are really messing with people. He goes, that's a million people right there. See that one data point? It's a million people who are doing something because of our manipulative system that they otherwise wouldn't have done. And he has now become a critic of what he calls the largest, most standardized, most centralized. Form of attention control in history. Let me say that again. He called it the largest, the most standardized, the most centralized form of attention control in human history. You think about that from the standpoint of prophecy and Satan wanted to come in in the last days and work around deceptions. You have this system in place ready for his use to control the mass mind in an unprecedented way. Now, one of the biggest whistleblowers coming out of big tech His name is Tristan Harris. He studied at the Stanford University, I love this name, Persuasive Technology Lab. Now he's working in Silicon Valley under the psychological masters who are creating this system, and they call it persuasive technology. Now he's now a critic of this, but the word persuasion right out of the gates is a little bit of a misnomer. What is true persuasion? Persuasion would be where you appeal to somebody's reason. You present evidence, facts, reasoning, logic, Bible truth in a compelling way, in a, in a winsome way to draw them into accepting the truth. It's a persuasive technique where they are still exercising the fruit of the Spirit's self-control. They still have their individuality. You're appealing to the free will God has given to people. That's persuasion. Persuasion. So when he comes out of Stanford with every method imaginable to manipulate the mass mind, he came out and said, this is not good what we are doing. We were taught, his word, covert ways to grab people's interest, attention, and clicks. Covert ways. That doesn't sound like persuasion, does it? That sounds like covert manipulation. So when you think about who Satan is, what is his name? The father of lies. He is the father of lies and deception and trickery. John 8, verse 44, the serpent was subtle and crafty, the Bible says, right? That is the system we are dealing with now, the same types of methods. And so when Tristan Harris said, never before in history have the decisions of a handful of designers had so much impact on how millions of people around the world spend their attention. He was kind of stating the obvious, but he had the courage to come out, even did a TED talk on this. So this has gone mainstream with these whistleblowers. He's pointing out that the mass mind can be shaped, controlled, manipulated like never before in history. Never before in history have the designs of these engineers been able to do such a thing. He goes on and says, all of us are jacked into this system. All of our minds can be hijacked. Our choices are not as free as we think they are. He says a handful of people working at a handful of technology companies, through their choices, will steer what a billion people are thinking today. A billion people have a smartphone in their pocket, a computer in their pocket with the internet, the social media, and everything. Wow. So when you read the words in the Bible, the whole world wonders after the beast, Are you starting to see the infrastructure of this being laid? Will this have a technological application in terms of how it is carried out? It's already happening before our very eyes. Some of the strategies and techniques that Tristan Harris pointed out as a whistleblower was Facebook using one simple change in color that totally dramatically changed the way people interacted with Facebook, and it was the alert button, that one right there and there and there. It used to be blue. Does anybody remember that? I don't even remember that. But I've learned in the history books of this that Facebook's color scheme is blue, and they used to have the message alert color also blue. And they weren't quite getting the engagement that they wanted. So they said, what can we do to really grab people's attention? And they said, let's use the color red because then we will get people's attention because red is a trigger color, Tristan Harris says, and that's why it is used as an alarm signal. So they're literally setting off a little anxiety alarm in the brains of people when they see that, oh, this needs to be solved. It's like the state of insufficiency or other things like this this red, this is an alarm. This is a problem. I got to get rid of the red. I got to look at these messages. Guess what? Did it work? Engagement skyrocketed when they simply changed that to red. Isn't that something? Then one teen came along in this article by the Atlantic magazine, and I can't blame the teens for starting to have thoughts like this. You remember yesterday when I cited the the, the survey that 63% of teenagers agree with the statement, I wish social media had never been invented, Yes, it can be used to God's glory. It can be used for great good. But for so many people, it is a ball and chain. It is an addictive cycle and a habituated clicking and a wasting of time and a psychological depressive and even suicide enhancing effect for so many people. So when they came out, two-thirds of them saying, I just wish it had never been invented. It makes sense to get an insight into this teen's thought process about this. She said, we didn't have a choice to know any life without iPads or iPhones, Isn't that an insightful thing about choice? She goes on and says, I think we like our phones more than we like actual people. I'll talk about that with you on Friday, actually. I have direct neurological facts about that very thing that we are in love with, our iPhones, literally, neurologically. More on that on Friday. But back to this part. We didn't have a choice. We didn't have a choice. So a system that is capturing the thoughts without our free will engagement is removing freedom of choice from the equation. Whose kingdom does that mirror, God's or Satan's? That's Satan's methods, right? God enhances our individuality by breathing into us his spirit and saying, I will make you a new creation. Choose ye this day whom you shall serve. Well, this young person is like, you know, we we were kind of, you know, you saw on Sunday the the, the iPad activity seat for babies, right? And the iPoddy and all that craziness and the baby swiping the magazine. You're like... These kids are getting thrust into this from the earliest of ages without any choice. And these systems are, are, are beginning to captivate and capture them without their in, engagement whatsoever as a mature young person could choose. The founder of the Swallowtail School in Hillsboro, Oregon. This is a Waldorf-style school, like the ones that the Silicon Valley engineers are sending their kids to in, in, uh, in the, the Bay Area as well. But this is up in Oregon. And the founder of this school stated the following about when to introduce technological tools in the lives of young people. And she said this, we believe that computer skills in the classroom should be postponed to high school. Now, that's even later than the Silicon Valley Waldorf School of the Peninsula. They started in middle school. But this one said high school. Why? I, I bring this up in the context of free will because listen to what she says. Now, this is a secular person, probably kind of spiritualist, new-agey, Waldorfy stuff, but th- th- the rocks are crying out. Listen to what she says. We think little children should not be bathed in media because we need to create a moral foundation of freedom of choice instead of being totally dependent on electronic media. These are deep insights. The teenager, the Waldorf school lady, they're saying it's about freedom of choice. Same thing as Dr. Cardaris says here. He says, my whole thesis is that we should let the child's brain develop first. And then we can introduce technological tools at more mature ages. Dr. Dunkley with Reset Your Child's Brain. By the way, that's going to be back there on the table as well uh, tomorrow. So we're, we're getting all this in your hands. That's, I was praising God. ABC was like, you, you got all kinds of stuff here. Let's do it all tomorrow. Dr. Dunkley says... When it comes to children's development, protect the frontal lobe for as long as you can in childhood by limiting screens as much as possible during childhood. And so when these are secular people saying these things, and we know the seal of God being placed in the, in the forehead metaphorically, symbolically, but also quite literally with that frontal lobe brain circuitry being transformed and being renewed. And when children are thrust into an addictive mind control system from an early age, then they end up losing that free will choice. And that is something that God takes very seriously as a God of Love. Because you can't have love without an atmosphere of free choice, can you? Now, I was thinking about these, these people's statements about the, the, the freedom of choice and, and, and um, the teens saying, we didn't know any life without iPads or iPhones. And, and some, you know, some families who might say, we're going to be a little more strict on childhood media and we're going to wait for this and we're not going to do any of that until never or until this age or whatever. They might get criticized by people. And you might hear this. Oh, that's such a controlling, strict, excessively you know autocratic parenting style. You have to allow the children to explore the media and find their individuality by going online from an early age and doing whatever they want. You're controlling them. Now, time out. Didn't we just hear that placing addictive substances in a child's hands is going to, do the, it's going to do the opposite of enhance their free will, right? So by withholding things in that childhood phase while that frontal lobe is developing, We are affirming their free will choice. We're helping their brain to develop to the point where when they are older, they will have the capacity to choose. Where if they're addicted from an early age, they won't ever have that ability to choose in the same way that they otherwise would be. So just never let anybody say, oh, you're taking away freedom by not letting kids do whatever they want. Absolutely false. In fact, there's a statement in Child Guidance that says parents who are indulging their children and allowing their children to do whatever they, they want, it's, people call that the, a very loving parenting style. It says it is the veriest cruelty. It says, Away with such love. It's not love, it's cruelty to be uh, inducting children into harmful, harmful habits from an early age. This is Dr. Marianne Wolf. Uh, She's the author of Reader Come Home, and she talks also about how the child's prefrontal cortex has not yet learned the rewards of sustained effort and attention. So when they have all the multimedia devices, particularly the interactive screen time, the video games and the iPads and everything online, what happens is with little prefrontal development on their side, children are completely at the mercy of one distraction after another and they quickly jumped from one shiny new stimulus to another. I spoke with a mother recently who had a young lady grew up in a home in her home where media was on the more restrictive side and not, not allowing children to do whatever they wanted and um, being outdoors a lot and in books and trying to have a more natural childhood. And somebody might say, well, this, this young lady, Christy, we'll call her, would not um, be able to navigate the realm of media as a young adult, she's going to jump off the deep end end because it was withheld from her and there's just going to be that much hunger and desire for it. It's going to become over the top. She's going to really overreact against never having been able to play video games and whatever. Well, it went like this. At age 20... She left for a Christian institution where she was to work and serve in a missionary status, and she now has her smartphone because she's been mentored into this as a young lady now and how to use it wisely and how to use the Internet in a a God-glorifying way that doesn't rob you of your life. And she finds herself, I just watched all these YouTube videos and they were silly, ridiculous things, and it's a waste of time. This is like sheer entertainment. I just spent an hour and a half on that. And after a few days of doing that, she put the brakes on because she noticed the problem coming in because the frontal lobe had been protected and developed in a way where as an 11-year-old, you wouldn't have had that capacity to be able to have that strength to say no. Same thing with Joe, another fella. I didn't meet Joe. I met Christy, but I met Joe's mother. And his mother told me, now our family was a family where we had zero video games. I'm telling you, we were practicing violin and we were hitting the books and we were doing things in a very, uh, rather strict manner with education. It was a very uh, academically inclined family, this particular one. And she said video games were going to disrupt that, so we had none of it. Until a well-meaning relative, perhaps well-meaning, gave my boys a Nintendo handheld DS video game system at Christmas, and they opened it up, and mom had no idea this was coming. By the way, please don't do that. Check with mom on what she thinks would be appropriate gifts for the kids. But now mom's in an awkward situation. Do I ruin Christmas and have a big old thing about this? And she's like, oh, okay. So she says, all right, boys, here's what we're going to do. Family's left. We're going to do a trial on this, 30 minutes a day, and that's it. How many families have tried this kind of thing, the limits of the amount of video games you play per day, and it never, it never goes beyond that? All of a sudden, within days, it's video games. They're designed to be addictive. We'll talk more about that in just a second. These kids are, oh, 30 becomes 45 real quick, and mom didn't notice. Oh, yeah, oh, okay, okay, I'll turn it off. But then the addiction is setting in more, and they're in the bathroom, and they're in the bathroom for an hour like, hey, knock, knock, knock. What are you doing in there going to the bathroom for an hour? Oh, okay, I'll come right out. I'm like, uh, yeah, you had the video game in there. So mom caught on to this. She said, enough of this. There's now lying and deception and all of this? And, and, and the performance at the other routines and tasks is dropping. She takes the DSs out to the curb where they belong. And all of a sudden they're gone. Now, Joe had a childhood by and large where he did have that protective frontal lobe. And by college age, he heads off to college and he gets access to a video game again and he starts playing it. And then he messages his mom. He's like, mom, Thank you for withholding these things from me because it is sucking away my time and I'm getting addicted to it and I do not want to do it anymore. I'm gonna ditch it, I'm getting rid of it right now. And don't expect me to message you on Instagram because I just won't be online that much. I'm here to study. And so these are examples just of people who are young adults who didn't, you know, we, we might think, well, well, you know, if the kids don't have it from early ages and they're not gonna learn how to use it, you know, they're not gonna be skilled with the technological tools that are so important to use in this modern economy. Now, I want to bring Exhibit A to you, the dolphin that can use an iPad. <laughs> exhibit B would be the chimpanzee that can play the video game, and then another chimpanzee literally scrolling social media on a smartphone. This is not doctored video. That is an actual chimpanzee, not just watching a video, but see what he does next. Yeah, let's see what else is on here. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? So, yeah, what else is on on Instagram there. Yeah, hey, let's watch this one. Oh, interesting. So it's called a smartphone because we don't have to be that smart to use it, right? These technological tools are so intuitive, so user-friendly. In fact, they're too user-friendly because they become so addictive. That's how they're designed to be. In fact, Sugata Mitra in India placed internet computers in remote Indian villages where children had never seen a computer or a screen before, and they figured out how to use the internet like in a couple of days. They were on it. The American Academy of Pediatrics says parents don't fret about little children not learning how to use these technological tools because they are very intuitive and easy to learn how to use these days. Now, long before the like button and pull to refresh and the red color on Facebook and even before MySpace, I think that was the first major social media, but I was thinking back to the 90s. When I was a teenager, there was social media and here's what it sounded like. What are these terrible sounds? If anybody is if you're from the younger crowd here, you're like, what in the world are you doing, Scott? That's called dial-up, right, when you used to call the Internet and it would occupy the phone line and nobody could call you. and Like, hey, what were you doing up all evening? And Oh, I was just chatting on there. See, here I was. I log on. I log on. I'm waiting, 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 waiting. All these uh, horrific noises happen. And then, uh, did I? Did I? Yes, I did. You got mail. Yeah, I got mail. And the dopamine is firing off in there. I was a social media addict as a teenager in the 90s on dial-up. See America online, the guy is there, he's running, Ooh, and then we're all together, it's so happy getting online, I'm sitting there chatting, I'm, I'm, forgive me, confession moment, God has grown me since then, <laughs> recent times, but sitting on there chatting till all hours of the night. So for generations now, big tech industries have been attempting to build addicts. and I'll state it As a quote from the CEO of HBO, what we are in the business of doing is building addicts, building video addicts. So he's coming out and admitting it. He's saying, this is our business model. We're trying to get you addicted. The CEO of Netflix came out with a tweet and he said, our business model is we have to beat our competitors. And and Netflix's competitors are Facebook and, and, and HBO and your sleep. So we have to overrule your sleep hours and get you watching Netflix in the middle of the night. Now, you know you're addicted when, in a recent survey, internet connection outranks blank in the things millennials value most for quality of life. What do you think might go in that blank for millennial age young adults who would say, internet connection is more important to me than what? Guess what goes in here? Than hot water? and daylight. First of all, that's gross, like no hot water. Sanitation aspects of that are... But daylight, you're talking about seeing God's creation around you in the three-dimensional, non-virtual, bright, and beautiful world? You'd rather give that up than give up internet connection. You know you're addicted when. And it becomes an aspect of boredom in our lives. We have to get online because I'm bored. What am I going to do? Well, let me see what's on my social media. What am I going to do? Well, what's on TV? It's this boredom thing, which is a new concept in the history of civilization. If you go back 200 years to prior to the Industrial Revolution, in the English language, you do not find this phrase anywhere. Like, people just didn't have the I'm bored phenomenon that we so have today, so frequently and so often for so many of us. Uh, Why didn't they have boredom 200 years ago? They didn't have the phrase at least, and there was much less of it for sure. What were they doing? They were busy working, right? They were. They, it was an agrarian society predominantly, which requires a lot of physical labor. And they were serious students as well. And, and the, the realm of academics and, and study and reading was a very important aspect of the early republic in this country. And so boredom is a modern phenomenon. You get the cities, you get the amusements, you get the entertainment industry, and now you get the online everything with me all the time. And boredom is truly a modern, postmodern phenomenon and a concept you never would have heard about 200 years ago study, smartphone addicts have shorter attention span and are more prone to boredom. Some men were brought into a, uh, an exper- in a laboratory to be experimented on. And the experiment went like this. Go ahead and sit in this chair, and you're going to sit in this laboratory a setting with nothing to look at and nothing to do. It's white walls and blank ground and no screens and no books and nothing to look at, nothing to do. And I'm going to put this little device on your hand and beep. Whoa, you just shocked me. Yes, that was a mild electric shock. It's not harmful to you. I apologize about that. Now, this is the button for hitting the electric shock, by the way. Okay, now see how long you can sit in here with nothing to occupy your mind. It was torture for these men. Within 6.5 minutes, the average man was reaching over to tap that button just to give himself some type of stimulation, even if it was pain. The pain of just being alone with your thoughts is greater than that of an electric shock because of this boredom phenomenon in our age. By the way, one-third of women also began to shock themselves as well. 6.5 minutes for the average man. The media mind is bored. The mind of Christ is not familiar with the concept Because when you live life God's way and you learn and rediscover what it means to be human again in our labor and in our study and in our activities to serve the the needy and in caring for children and animals and building things and fixing things and, and growing things and touching the, the nature around us and the soil beneath us and cooking and cleaning and reading and studying and entrepreneurial endeavors and ministry endeavors and artistic outlets and music. and You could go on and on and on and on. The human experience is so captivating. God has created us to have this, the desire of every living thing satisfied, right? He hasn't created us to just be like, uh, what should I do? No, he's given us an incredible existence. We were not supposed to only live for a few decades or a hundred years. We were supposed to live on and on and on perpetually. And then people lived for like 900 years in the antediluvian world. Did they ever get bored after 900 years? Like, what do we do now? Man, it's like we've done everything. No, there was no such thing. We're not familiar with the concept of boredom when you're on a a mission, when you wake up in the morning and you're a child of God, beloved of God, and a servant of God sent forth to do something with your life. The media mind, though, is restless and pleasure-seeking. The mind of Christ, content in the moment, the present moment I'm with, with another person, or even with the birds and trees around me, and most importantly, with my Savior, Jesus. Have you ever heard of nomophobia? <laughs> this is a real thing. 66% of people suffer from the fear of not having your no- mobile phone. Nomophobia. No mobile phone. Phobia, right? Right? Two-thirds of people from time to time suffer from nomophobia, and according to surveys, nomophobia ranks as high on people's fear scale as a terrorist attack, which last time I checked can kill you, but not having your mobile phone usually doesn't have fatal consequences to it. 46% of Americans claim, I couldn't live without my smartphone. 46% of people, I couldn't live without it, in one UK survey. 73% of respondents used this word to describe how they feel when they have misplaced their phone. Slightly concerned? No. Panic! 73% of them feel panic when they have misplaced their phone. In fact, I'm reading in a science publication, Science Daily, about smartphone loss anxiety disorder. Did you think you would see the day this is a thing. This exists. Smartphone loss. Anxiety disorder. In Sherry Turkle's research at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, she has found that a lost cell phone hits people emotionally like the death of a loved one. Whoa. Okay. We've reached, I don't know, peak insanity, maybe, in this culture. Couldn't get any crazier. There's starting to be a backlash against this, isn't there? Now, can you go one hour without your phone? 30 people, for 30% of people. Admit, I could not go one hour without my phone. I could not set it away for one hour without checking my social media was that one. I have to be on my social media at least once an hour, says 30% of people who use social media. So that can become addictive as well, the social media can. So here's a chart about being without your phone and how the stress and anxiety scores go up. Now the blue one is light daily phone users. They don't, in, they don't get increased stress reactions out of their phone because they're not addicted to it. But people who are moderate daily phone users, after 10 minutes, they're here, and after 30 minutes, they've skyrocketed in their cortisol response and the stress hormones in their body, and it stays elevated till that one-hour mark, which is where they stop charting it. The people who are heavy daily phone users... They started high, they go higher, and they keep going higher. And it's just a stressful life. We'll talk more about stress tomorrow, but that's the sign of an addiction right there. When you're like, (laughs) withdrawal symptoms, right? Uh, By the way, this word addiction, it traces back to the the Latin. In the time of the Roman Empire, the word addiction was used to describe a sentence that somebody would be given if they were a debtor or if they were otherwise uh, 'er ne'er-do-well and they needed to be sentenced to 10 years or the rest of your life of addiction, and that meant involuntary servitude, slavery. So when you want to be addicted to something, you're saying, I'm ready to be a slave to that thing. You know what I want to be a slave to? What does the Bible say? We can be slaves to righteousness. I want to be a slave to righteousness, as we saw earlier, Christ identifying his thoughts with my thoughts, so that when obeying him, I am but carrying out my own. Impulse. And we've used the word addiction a few times. And seven years ago, I was quoting George Barna when he came out and said media exposure has become America's most widespread and serious addiction. That was from his research. That was a a, a statistical analysis he ran and an objective statement. But I got all kinds of flack and people were getting all kinds of feedback and pushback on this. Like, what are you talking about? Media is not a real addiction. It's not a real... Seven years later, it's like... Everybody's saying the same thing George Barna said back in 2012, like Dr. Nicholas Cardaris. Listen to these words carefully. Let this sink in. He says, I've worked with hundreds of heroin addicts, and what I can say is that it's easier to treat a heroin addict than a true screen addict. We are dealing with something on the same level or higher than the narcotics addictions of previous decades in the present world as well. This screen addiction thing, he says, is harder to get people off of their video game addiction than to get them off of heroin, which is the most addictive narcotic drug there is. Chris Anderson, the former editor of Wired magazine and now the chief executive of a robotics and drone company, says... On a scale between candy and crack cocaine, it's closer to crack cocaine. He says, we thought we could control it with their children he's speaking of. This is beyond our power to control. He says, this is going straight to the pleasure centers of the developing brain. This is beyond our capacity as regular parents to understand. I didn't know what we were doing to their brains until I started to observe the symptoms and the consequences, and how many hundreds of emails have I received and conversations from concerned parents who've begun to observe the consequences of childhood video game play and so much media exposure for children. You see the symptoms, you see the consequences, you see the withdrawal, you see the arguments, you see the irritability, and it is a serious issue. So go back to that reset your child's brain. Be sure to come by the table tomorrow because I want you to pick that up and give that to anybody with parents because it has the step-by-step program and plan for how to help children out of that. But it's not just children, is it? This is the UCLA director of neuroscience named Dr. Peter Wybrow. He calls this phenomenon of screen addiction electronic cocaine. Chinese researchers call it digital heroin And then you read headlines like this, smartphone addiction alters brain chemistry in young people for the worse. It literally is changing their brain chemistry in a way where it's doing an imbalance in the brain, and their brain is looking like an alcoholic's brain or somebody suffering from depression. And that's just from using, you know, playing the video games and excessive uh, social media time at the wrong ages and all of that. So here's Dr. Dunkley again. She says, view electronics as a stimulant. In essence, not unlike caffeine, amphetamines, or cocaine. She says electronic screen device use puts the body into a state of high arousal and hyperfocus, followed by a crash. This overstimulation of the nervous system is capable of causing a variety of chemical, hormonal, and sleep disturbances in the same way other stimulants can. So view these electronic devices as caffeine, amphetamines, and cocaine for children. This is the uh, uh, researcher in addiction um, at the Pentagon and Dr. Andrew Doan, the head of addiction research in the U.S. Navy. He says that the tech industry is deliberately making the video games as addictive as possible and his term, which is where I got it from, he calls it digital pharmakia, and that would be Greek for sorcery or drug use. Back to Dr. Cardaris. he says, we now know that those iPads, smartphones, and Xboxes are a form of digital drug Recent brain imaging research is showing that they affect the brain's frontal cortex, which controls executive functioning, the ability to self-regulate and have self-control. It's affecting the frontal cortex, executive functioning, including impulse control, in exactly the same way that cocaine does. We're kind of hearing a theme here, aren't we? They're saying the same thing over and over again. It's a digital drug. It's like cocaine. It's digital pharmakia. In fact, you can look at the brains of young people and watch the amount of dopamine that's being released while they're playing that game, and it is akin to that of taking the dose of speed, the drug speed, from the 80s. Remember the rave, the rave drug. So both drug use and excessive screen usage actually stunts the frontal cortex and reduces the gray matter in that part of the brain. It's literally shrinking the brain. That's a serious wake-up call. So hyper-arousing games create a double whammy. Not only are they addicting, But then addiction perpetuates itself by negatively impacting the part of the brain that can help with impulsivity and good decision-making. So the devil really wants those prefrontal cortexes reduced and diminished and shrunken and shriveled so that you can't exercise that self-control that God is empowering us to do if we will. If we will behold him and live life God's way, the mind can be transformed and renewed. So if you're thinking, oh no, we've destroyed our minds and that of our children forever, and we are lost and doomed to death and destruction. Well, hold on. Don't forget the Bible promise. It says we can be transformed. So we've gone down here. We can go right back up by God's power and grace. So yes, this is a serious thing, but it's not too problematic for our all-powerful God. Ian Bogos, the famous video game creator, says that these habit-forming technologies are the cigarettes of this century. The big scandal. The big thing we're all going to look back on at this time and say, what were we thinking? One in ten teens now admit that they play over 40 hours of video games per week. And the video game designers are making it harder and harder to stop playing. They, te- they, they, they make these games in a laboratory setting so that if their are subjects in the experiments, if they're not getting a blood pressure boost to 180 over 140, they're like, there's not enough an adrenaline rush on that level in that scene of the game. Intensify it. We've got to get people more engaged, more adrenaline rushed by this, by this scene in the game. In the book Irresistible by Adam Alter, he talks about this game World of Warcraft, and he says, if I'm addicted to to say, World of Warcraft, the minute I start firing up the game, my brain will look in a scan very much like the brain of someone who's addicted to heroin and is preparing the next hit. He says, during the act of playing the game, my brain will look very much like that person's brain will look as they're taking heroin or the brain of someone who is addicted to gambling as they sit in front of a slot machine and play the game. 100 million, roughly, have played the game, and by many measures, about half of them have developed an addiction, at least temporarily. So that, to me, suggests that it's a weaponized game. It's an experience that's very, very hard to resist. And that's why when I've shared media on the brain seminars to people, and somebody's like, you know, my son is here as a video game addict, Oftentimes, it's really hard to break through that addiction. I just talked to a guy right across the street just yesterday. He says, I was one of the top 10 in the world at Call of Duty. And they have competitions, and you you can rank up. He says, I saw your media on the brain, and that was God speaking to me, and I hung it up and let it go. And so continue to press forward with this information. You might be like, whoa, this is intense. This is pretty heavy stuff. But remember that while the media mind is addicted, the mind of Christ is free. And the Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. God wants to bring freedom to each one of us. And we can say thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can say where the spirit of the Lord is, there is. Is freedom and liberty from these addictions, and many 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 testimonies of people who've come out of these these technological addictions to be able to live a productive and happy life, but we may all have kind of low level addictions or many of us. George Barnett said the majority of Americans qualify for an addiction to some type of their favorite media and entertainment. the majority of us, so it 's not just the crazy forty hour a week video gamer on sixty minutes, they talked about a study. That was being conducted, a $300 million National Institutes of Health study. And that got my attention. Like, wow, the biggest study ever of media use and the developing brain. Somebody sent me the, the link to it. And they said, Scott, you've got to watch this. You're going to love it. Now, there were certain aspects that I loved. Uh, they brought in Dr. Dimitri Christakis, who I told you about on Monday. And so many good things in the episode. But one thing that absolutely made me lose my breath and my jaw proverbially hit the floor. They said... They had experts, doctors, researchers, the the professional people, the guardians of our children's brains, supposedly, saying, you know, one thing we're looking into over the next 10 years as we do this $300 million study is we're looking into whether video games might be addictive. And it might release dopamine in the brain. What? (laughs) Excuse me? I mean, you're going to tell us in 10 years? So we're going to have a generation of kids coming up without the proper warnings? That's unconscionable. They even show, in this study, preliminary findings showed that seven hours of screen time per day, which is less than the average for teens, but seven hours of screen time per day is causing premature thinning of the cortex. And their, their experts say, we've noticed premature thinning and alteration in the development of child brains, and we're not certain if this is a good or a bad thing. <laughs> Come on, people. This is, this is the, the big episode of 60 Minutes. So yeah, it's why I keep doing this. You know, it's like when everybody's saying it. Do I need to keep doing this? I picked up the Grand Rapids Press the other day, my hometown newspaper, and on the cover it was uh, deleterious effects of video or of uh, binge watching Netflix, and I'm like, this is on the front page of my hometown newspaper. I can stop doing media seminars, right? But then I read on in the article, and it goes, it says, binge-watching is harmful to your health because you're losing sleep, and it's da-da-da, and sedentary, and your junk food, and it, it lists all these things. And then the second half of the article is how to binge-watch responsibly. <laughs> like, what? Be sure to watch together with people, and take periodic breaks, and try not to do it late at night. And I'm like, come on, can't we raise the bar and raise the standard a little? So, even though the rocks are crying out, they're not crying out with the the the, the urgency that those of us who know we are in the last days have and that doesn't mean that we that we throw out all media but when it comes to addictive media we've got to take serious stances on this for our lives this is what jim steyer ceo and founder of common sense media said he said tech companies are conducting a massive real-time experiment on our kids so while 10 years goes by and 300 million dollars is put into this he says in the present moment there's an experiment happening on our kids and nobody is holding them accountable, he says. Dr. Wolf says no self-respecting internal review board at any university would allow a researcher to do what our culture has already done with no adjudication or previous evidence. And what is that? They've introduced a complete quasi-addictive set of attention-compelling devices without knowing the possible side effects and ramifications for the subjects of this experiment. Our kids, the guinea pigs of a generation of media addiction, This is Dr. Steiner Adair again from The Big Disconnect. She says, talk of addiction is not hyperbole. So this isn't just somebody trying to be an alarmist. These serious researchers are saying... This is not exaggeration. This is not hyperbole. This is a clinical reality. In fact, that's borne out in the World Health Organization's definitions of addictions, as well as the American Psychiatry Association's manual. They qualify screen addictions as serious addictions today. So we're way past where we were in 2012 when they didn't have this one out yet, and WHO hadn't you know, caught up with reality yet. Well, they're starting to catch up now. And you get people like Dr. Steiner Adair saying, it's not hyperbole, it's a clinical reality to call it an addiction. As adults, we may choose keyword free will, right? We may choose to mess with our mind and gamble with our own neurology. But I have never met a caring parent who would knowingly risk his or her child's future in this way, and yet, we are handing these devices that we use the language of addiction to describe over to our children, who are even more vulnerable to the impact of everyday use on their developing brains. Back to Cardaras, he says, "Your kid's brain on Minecraft looks like a brain on drugs." He says, no wonder we have a hard time peeling kids from their screens and find our little ones agitated when their screen time is interrupted. Did you hear that phrase, the brain on drugs? Well, first, what kinds of media? Video games. Addictive. But how about this? Brain on drugs. Does that bring anybody else back to the 80s commercials, the public service announcements with the egg and the frying pan? It's like, hey, kids, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. And it's like this ominous voice in music and, any questions? Like, whoa, okay, I'm not going to do drugs. I grew up in the 80s. I'd go to the um, dime store and pick up a pack of candy cigarettes, ironically, cigarettes. I'd open the pack, and on the inner flap it would say, say no to drugs (laughs) like everywhere I went I was hearing this say no to drugs say no to drugs little kids don't touch this stuff don't do the crack cocaine as it's emerging in the 80s the 60s and 70s just happened and all the major addictions were emerging kids don't do drugs don't do drugs the chapel speaker would come in and he'd be like hey kids I'm from the 60s and I did the rock music and we played in the band and I did the drugs and What was I thinking about? I forgot what I was going to say. And I'd be like, that's a testimony. I don't want to go there what he did. So they thoroughly messaged us. Praise God, I never touched those drugs. Now, I had rebellious years in my teenage years. I played in a band. I consumed other things. But I didn't want to touch these hard drugs that I had heard these stories about because I knew how they could captivate and ruin your life. Now, we need these same kind of messages, particularly for video games, particularly for all the entertainment media for our youth, don't we? 83% of kids have a gaming console in their home. Nearly all teenagers have a smartphone. And here we now ask ourselves, have we, have we leapt ahead of the research and, 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 and of, of um, what, we, what we need to learn is best for them? And so praying that through as individuals and as families is important. Thinking about the family, though. This area of the brain, which is called the reward circuitry of the brain, the pleasure pathway of the brain, here's some really, really good news. When you are in a deeply bonded and emotionally attached relationship, whether that's romantic relationship, parent and child, brother and sister, mother and son, father and son, etc., daughter and mother, here you go. You are filling this area up and the whole brain, actually, with activity in a bunch of different serotonin pleasure centers. And you're getting a full brain experience, and guess what? You're co-opting the reward circuit and filling it with good things so Satan can't come in with the addiction and captivate that area as easily. So we have the answer from God. I've talked about this in the Lust series, in A Greater Lust, enslaved to purity in a pornographic world. Recovering from habits requires new habits, filling the brain with different things and better things in the same circuitry, but rewiring and rerouting it for a holiness pathway. I don't have time to get into that right now, but you can get those DVDs tomorrow um, when we put the table up again. And tomorrow. But um, the last three discs of that are all about overcoming principles. So I know I've thrown a lot at you here with like the, the, the dangers of this addiction, but let's just remember this Bible text. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him, right? And so we, we, we're not going to give the devil a single inch of ground and territory in our lives because we have Bible promises and principles for holy living to overcome these habits. Now I want to close with the concept of happiness because God wants us all to be happy. He wants, to, he wants us to have joy. And there was an article, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation, written in the Atlantic Magazine. And it points out that social media use is actually causing unhappiness, which the research was was in doubt for a number of years because they found... People who use more social media were were more unhappy, but they didn't know if it was a causal relationship. They didn't know if the social media was causing the unhappiness or if it was just unhappy people are drawn to social media, and so it's just a correlating uh, two, two factors. And this study found it was a causing factor. So people using social media, it depresses. We saw that yesterday, right, with depression rates and everything else. And speaking of happiness, the happiest teens use smartphones and digital media less than an hour a day. And then back to this article. I want to share with you something wonderful, and I love ending with this quotation. It is such a powerful moment to just say, yes, let's do something better. I kind of spoiled it right there, but here she goes. Ready? She's going to tell us about, Jean Twenge, San Diego State University, is going to tell us about studies that have been done on how teenagers use their time and how happy they are. And this will apply to all of us, no matter what age we're at. She goes and tells uh, the results of these surveys could not be clearer. They've been done for generations on tens of thousands of teens. This is not in doubt. The results could not be clearer. Teens who spend more time than average on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy. And those who spend more time than average on non-screen activities are more likely to be happy. And there's not a single exception. All screen activities are linked to less happiness, and all non-screen activities are linked to more happiness. If you were going to give advice for a happy adolescence based on this survey, it would be straightforward. Put down the phone, turn off the laptop, and do something, anything that does not involve a screen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you've satisfied the desire of every living thing, that you withhold no good thing from us, that you want us to take joy and delight as we walk with you, And Lord, help us to find ways to put these technological devices back in their place as useful tools in your service, that they don't control us, that the methodology of big tech to manipulate the minds and and the designers who've made these terribly addicting, that, that we would find ways to say no to the digital drug in our lives and in our children's lives. Lord, please give us wisdom in that. Help us to try out a fast from certain things and to make a commitment to just relieve ourselves of some media thing for a week, a month, whatever you would direct. Help us to find something better. And we know that is in your nature and that is in Jesus, that is in your word, that is in church involvement, service, witnessing. We just know you've given us more things to do than we could ever find time for and so we just delight in that life and help us to rediscover how to be human again, how to, how to not be captive, but to be free. We thank you that your Holy Spirit comes with a spirit of liberty. We thank you that we can have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse,